morning in Matthew chapter 27, we're going to look again at part of the passage that we looked at last week, beginning in verse 45, reading through verse 54, Matthew chapter 27. I'd like to read that passage in your hearing and ask Malcolm if he would pray for the ministry of the Word this morning. Matthew chapter 27, beginning in verse 45. Now from the sixth hour darkness fell upon all the land until the ninth hour. And about the ninth hour Jesus cried out with a loud voice, saying, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, that is, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And some of those who were standing there when they had heard it began saying, This man is calling for Elijah. And immediately one of them ran and taking a sponge, filled it with sour wine, and put it on a reed and gave him a drink. But the rest of them said, Let us see whether Elijah will come and save him. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened, and many bodies of the saints who had fallen asleep were raised. And coming out of the tombs after his resurrection, they entered the holy city and appeared to many. Now the centurion and those who were with him keeping guard over Jesus, when they saw the earthquake and the things that were happening, became very frightened and said, Truly, this was the Son of a God. Let us pray. A loving Heavenly Father, as we come to the Scripture, uh, we, in a way, it's the crown of the whole Gospel. It's very sensitive to us, O oh Lord. We know this is the very price that was paid for, the, for each one of us. Father, as we study this word, I pray that your, your hand will be upon us, your servant, and uh, that you would uh, give him peace of mind as he expounds this word, and give us, O oh God, a deeper understanding of the price that was paid for us at Calvary. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. John chapter 19, verse 6, Pontius Pilate brings Jesus out to the pavilion in the presence of all the people, and he says, Behold the man. In the Latin, that is, ecce homo. And that phrase, ecce homo, behold the man, became the theme for an entire genre of art in the Middle Ages and in the Renaissance. And you can look it up and, and see the, the various paintings that were done where Pilate is presenting Jesus clad in a purple robe with a crown of thorns on his head saying, Eche homo, behold the man. The problem with most of the art is it doesn't portray a man at all. It portrays a beaten and bowed down, depleted and despairing creature with his eyes half shut. This is the Jesus that most people think of when they think of the Passion and of the Crucifixion. If any of you were at any time Catholic or spent any time at uh, St. Francis Hospital, you've seen a crucifix. And again, it has Jesus on there with his head bowed down. Those paintings of the Crucifixion that are popular among the Roman Catholics have him as a truly defeated 
man. And I just can't help wondering if they didn't get it wrong. But by these pictures and these crucifixes that even us Protestants have seen and sometimes collect and have hanging in our houses, we haven't preset our own thinking about what it is Jesus was doing on the cross. Whether or not we have a completely mistaken view. How do you envision Jesus? Throughout this passion, as he is before the Sanhedrin, as he is before Pilate, and then Herod, and then Pilate, and then the people, as he's hanging on the cross, is he bowed down? Is he defeated? Does his ha- is, are his eyes half-closed, despairing, depressed? It was after Pilate had presented Jesus to the people and said, Behold the man, taking him back into his office in the praetorium. It was when Jesus said to him, You would have no authority over me unless it was given to you from above. I would submit to you that the only time Jesus even approached despair was again back in Gethsemane, but not at Golgotha. How do you picture him? The paintings always seem to me to make him somewhat effeminate, somewhat shamed and shameful. I don't know what it is the artist were trying to get with his bowed head and his eyes half closed. But I can imagine the holy angels had their heads bowed and their eyes closed as they witnessed what was going on at Golgotha. And I think from the text that I read this morning, even creation was ashamed at what man was doing to the Son of Man. We read in verse 45, Now from the sixth hour until the ninth hour, the darkness fell upon the land. The beginning of the participation of creation in the passion of its creator, its Lord, Jesus Christ. I don't think that Jesus died of physical weakness. I don't, frankly, think he died of crucifixion. I think he did exactly what he said he was going to do, and that is he gave up his spirit. He laid down his life. But he did so in the power of righteousness, in the power of an indestructible life. A power that just doesn't come out in any of the portraits, in any of the paintings. But I think it comes out of the text. It comes out of the scripture. Because of the mechanics of crucifixion, it is incredibly hard, so I have read and not experienced, but incredibly hard to speak. Because in order to speak, you need your diaphragm and your lungs to be working. Now, I I think the closest thing that any of us may have encountered to this, and I know that I have, is surgery on your abdomen, where that part of your body is weakened, and you don't get the breath, the air that you need in order to project. But hanging on the cross every time you breathe, you have to lift yourself up by your feet, which is an excruciating, again, the word coming from from the cross, excruciatingly painful process. And the reports that have been, that have remained of people crucified is that they, they do not talk for long. 
Men who go to their crucifixion railing against the government, railing against their executors, soon become silent because they can barely breathe, much less talk. But the gospel records seven sayings from the cross, and Matthew himself records two loud cries coming from our Lord Jesus Christ. The first one, of course, we read in verse 46, where Jesus quotes from Psalm 22, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And we like to think, as we read it, that Jesus is considering what we've just read, all of the abuse and the blasphemy and the sacrilege that has been hurled at him from the ground, from the scribes and the Pharisees and the passers-by, the mocking of the Roman soldiers, and even of the thieves crucified on either side. Though I have to imagine their words were silenced by their own agony very quickly. But I would submit to you that Jesus' thoughts were somewhere different than what was coming at him from the people. One of the seven sayings from the cross pertains to the people. He says, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. When he cries out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? It is from the midst of a battle that none of these people could see. But creation could see it. And creation responded to it. It was that battle with the forces of darkness. For this was Satan's hour and the hour, the power of darkness. And Jesus on the cross was at war. Not with the scribes and the Pharisees. Not with the Herodians and the Romans but with the prince of darkness and his demons. And whatever blasphemies, whatever sacrilege was being hurled at him from that sphere, nobody here could hear it. But Jesus did. He was being made sin. He was being made a curse. And he was being attacked and bludgeoned by the forces of darkness. And that is what was behind his loud cry, My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? But it's the second cry that I want us to meditate on this morning. The one that we read in verse 50. And Jesus cried out again with a loud voice and yielded up his spirit. Luke informs us what it is Jesus said at this moment. And we will get to that in a moment. But I think it's significant that Matthew does not. He simply says, he cried out with a loud voice. Again, a loud voice. Not something that the normal victim of crucifixion would be able to muster. He cried out with a loud voice. It's as if Matthew was seeking to capture nothing more than the raw power because of what he was about to relate. That happened not just after this cry, but because of it. The things that we read about with the earthquake and the opening of the tombs and the splitting of the rocks and the tearing of the veil from top to bottom. Most of you know that I'm not a fan of artistic depictions of Jesus. I personally believe they are a violation of the second commandment. But even, if, if I can say this even more practically and more down to earth, they're wrong. They consistently portray Jesus as meek, weak, 
and pitiful, and as I said before, often effeminate. Not behold the man, and I don't know the Latin word for pansy, but that's basically the way most art depicts Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory, who is being crucified here. They would not have crucified the Lord of glory. And yet, in our minds, when we think of the cross and the passion, we go to those stupid paintings. I've talked to people about them, and they say, well, it helps me think of Jesus. And I've heard this analogy before, but I've used it myself as well. If my wife were to start putting pictures of another man around the house and told people that it helps me to think of Chuck, And they would say, well, but it doesn't look anything like him. And she would say, I know, it looks better. (laughs) It doesn't help us think of Jesus. It helps us form a false image of Jesus and one that is often woefully inadequate to what we read about in the Word. Listen to John on Patmos. And I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat upon it called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And he was making war on the cross at Golgotha. This was Satan's hour and the hour and the power of darkness. The paintings try to depict Christ's meekness. And he was meek and lowly of heart. Try to depict him as the Lamb of God. But they fail to capture his power as the Lord of glory. And art can't do that. Art can't bring together his meek and gentle spirit and the power of an indestructible life. Art cannot depict God who is ensconced in the heavens and yet dwells with the lowly in heart. The imminence and the transcendence of God is incapable of being captured in art, which I believe is why God gave us the second commandment. Anything we try to do when we try to do a portrayal of God, we'll bring him down to our level and we'll leave out the most glorious aspects of his nature. We'll get to the fact that Jesus Christ is no longer on the cross as he is on the Roman Catholic crucifix. But this morning I just want to to think on that art and how the text of Scripture is so much more graphic so much more vivid and so much more accurate. I do not believe his head was bowed and his eyes closed. I do believe he was in excruciating pain. He was a man. His body was being torn apart. He talks about that prophetically in Psalm 22. I can count all my bones. My joints are being ripped apart. My heart is like wax within me. It melts which is an incredibly accurate description from what medical professions, professionals have commented on death by crucifixion. But he was at war. And I wonder if Jesus even heard much of what was being hurled at him from the ground. So loud was the cacophony of blasphemy coming from the demonic hosts that surrounded him. Satan filling his ears with more sinister lies than the chief priest could dream up. Demons hurling abuse and sacrilege at him. 
the sense of abandonment from his father as he went to war on our behalf with the hosts of darkness. My God, my God, hast thou forsaken me? But at some point the battle was finished. That was one of the seven sayings from the cross. The time came for Jesus to deliver the coup de grace. Not Satan. The time for Jesus to do what Satan was not expecting. To die. Listen to the psalmist. In thee, O Lord, I have taken refuge. Let me never be ashamed. In thy righteousness deliver me. Thou wilt pull me out of the net which they have laid for me, for thou art my strength. Into thy hand I commit my spirit. That's what Jesus cried before he gave up the spirit. He had fought against the devil, and he was about to do what God cannot do, die. But in that last breath, he delivered the coup de grace. He delivered the stroke of victory that would lay Satan flat. Into thy hands I commit my spirit. A righteous man in whom Satan had nothing. Jesus already said that. A righteous man in whom there was no sin and therefore no grounds for death. Died. Death won, but in winning, death lost. And that's what happened. That's what we see, starting in verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split, and the tombs were opened. John Owen wrote a famous treatise, The Death of Death. In the death of Christ. I get excited about this because Satan wasn't expecting this. I think that fool angel thought he'd won. I think the demons thought they'd won. I think C.S. Lewis is probably the best author to portray this in writing when he describes the sacrifice of Aslan on the stone table. And the victory cries and cheers and jeers of the white witch and her minions is about the closest I've ever read outside of the Bible to what Satan must have been thinking and feeling and rejoicing in. The impossibility that Christ should die coupled with the fact that he did die released the power of righteousness from him that would consume death forever. Death didn't belong to him. He did not belong to it. He willingly allowed it to seize him, to grasp him, and to take him under. But it had no grip, for there was no sin. They were grabbing on to an indestructible life and when he gave up the ghost, when he gave up the spirit, giving them what they thought was a victory, to me, it reads 
like the splitting of an atom. And a power emanating from that cross and from that dead body that would consume death itself. Now, I don't like art and I don't like depictions of Jesus. But I will say that the way this entire scene was depicted in the real movie Ben-Hur, not the sacrilegious remake they're making, but the real one, in which Jesus is never portrayed. But at the moment of his death, it's like all of creation just tumbles into chaos. And you have the picture of the blood mingling with the rain flowing down from Golgotha. And then the image of Ben-Hur's mother and his sister who had been stricken with leprosy looking at their hands and they're whole again. Because from that cross, Isaiah tells us, comes healing. Life out of that death. That's power. Not meekness, not weakness, not despair, not eyes half closed and head bowed. But a man, the son of man, crying out, into thy hands I commit my spirit. And immediately the initial salvo of this new battle, the veil of the temple is torn from top to bottom. Now there's disagreement as to which veil this was. The veil in front of the Holy of Holies or the veil in front of the holy place. It may have been either. Some argue that it was the outer one because more people would have seen it. And because this was visible to many people. But the point is, this was the veil that kept Jesus himself out of the inner sanctum of his father's house. Imagine what Jesus himself thought every time he went to the temple and saw that veil that physically kept him, the Son of God, out of his Father's presence in the Holy of Holies because he was not a Levite. Death was the penalty of anyone who unlawfully went behind that veil. Death was the payment for the high priest who entered the second veil unworthily in the wrong manner. Death is what that veil represented to the people of Israel who were not of the tribe of Levi, not of the priesthood. But Jesus' death ended all that. All that the veil stood for. The rocks were split. Cataclysmic result of a truly righteous man's death. We've studied in Genesis how man and creation were made together. I've often said that I don't believe that our place is going to be floating on the clouds playing harps, for which I'm very glad because I don't like harp music. It's the only thing worse is organ music. We're not going to be living in heaven. We're going to be in the new earth. Because this was made for man and man for the earth. And so it stands to reason that since Abel's blood called out from the earth for God's righteous justice, the earth itself would cry out when the Son of God's blood touched it. And that's what this earthquake means. Paul says in Romans 8, For we know that the whole creation groans and suffers the pains of childbirth together until now. And perhaps this was perhaps the first contraction. 
Creation is often personified in Scripture. In other words, creation is, is written about and spoken of as if it were alive and had a personality. Now we know the rocks do not have personalities, but creation belongs to the Creator. We read that in Him and through Him all things were made, and nothing was made apart from Him, and He holds all things together by the word of His power. And so when He cried out, Into thy hands I commit my spirit, that power grew strength out of creation. The sky was darkened, the earth split open, and the tombs, the tombs were opened. And the dead that were in them came forth. Now this is an interesting and enigmatic passage. Is this a resurrection? And most scholars, and, and I tend to agree with them, would say no. This is perhaps in a direct response to one of the taunts that came from the ground around the cross. He saved others. He cannot save himself. But the truth is, had he saved himself, he would have lost others. And in losing himself, it was as if he multiplied the miracle of Lazarus. And most believe that those who came forth, they're referred to as saints, are not necessarily the saints of the old covenant. They're not those who have been dead in the tombs for many years and some perhaps for centuries and more. But were probably the recent dead among the disciples of Jesus Christ. That this was the miracle, not of resurrection, but revivification. The coming back to life of those who had just died and who would come back as Lazarus did, but probably die again. This was a vivid and graphic answer to the question from the Psalms. Death, where is your victory? Death, where is your sting? Behold the man, Eche Homo. Behold the Lord of glory and the power of an indestructible life. The beginning of this series on the passion of Jesus Christ as recorded by Matthew, I presented to you two different views of Jesus and his sufferings. One portraying Jesus as the sacrificial lamb and the other called Christus Victor, Jesus is the conquering king through his sufferings. At the time, I concluded that it was not an either-or, it's a both-and. That without doubt, the Bible teaches that he is our Passover lamb. And that as Isaiah tells us, he was led as a, a lamb to the slaughter. And he did not oppose or fight back to men as they took him to his death at Golgotha. But at the same time, he was Christus Victor. And Paul tells us in Colossians that he was making a public display of the rulers of this age. And that wasn't Pilate, that wasn't Caiaphas, that wasn't Herod. It was Satan. He was making a public display, triumphing over them through the cross. They never saw it coming. But here we see what art cannot portray. John again from Patmos. An angel says to him, stop weeping. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book and its seven 
seals. And so John apparently wiped the tears from his eyes and he looked and I saw a lamb as if slain. The lion and the lamb in one man. Art can't get it. But we can. The power of an indestructible life. The power that emanated from Christ when he cried out at the last, into thy hands I commit my spirit. I believe blew Satan several galaxies away. I think it's interesting to note that the early church had a time of peace and spiritual prosperity, growing in favor with all men, and even many of the priests were being added to the church during those early times. I think it took Satan a while to get back to earth after this happened. He did, just as the veil itself was sewn up and repaired, and it would function for another generation until the Romans would come and destroy it utterly and forever. The grave, we read, lost its grip on the dead. It slipped out of its hands. The tombs were opened, and the dead came forth, all showing a foretaste of what was ultimately to come, what Paul talks about in 1 Corinthians 15, when he says that Christ must reign until all his enemies are put under his feet, the last of which is death. And then he will sum up all things in himself and present them to God, that God might be all and all. Satan recovered. He returned to persecute and to attack God's people. The veil was repaired, and it would continue to operate and keep people out of the presence of God for another generation. Those who, di- who rose again, I believe, died again. And they are with us, with those of our loved ones who have died, awaiting the final resurrection. But the victory has been won. Death has been defeated. And as we sang in one of the hymns today, it no longer can awe the believer. Let us pray. Father, we rejoice in the power of the man Jesus Christ, that he was not killed, but rather he laid down his life. And by the same authority with which he laid down his life, he took it up again, conquering sin and death and the devil on our behalf. He is indeed our champion, the Lord of glory. And we rejoice and praise him. And we praise you, Father, for sending him. For you loved us with such an everlasting love that you sent your only begotten Son. And Father, we thank you for the Holy Spirit, that down payment, the earnest of our inheritance in the saints, the one who promises and testifies to our spirit that we are the children of God, and that the one who won the victory for us on the cross will indeed bring it to pass when this age is wrapped up, when death itself is finally done away with. Father, all of these things are marvels to our mind and to our hearts. We pray, Father, even as we commune with you through the bread and through the cup, that you would unite our hearts and our minds with our Lord Jesus Christ, seated at your right hand, knowing that his head was never bowed, his eyes never closed in despair. But he trusted himself to you, 
Father, we ask that you would teach us how to do so as well. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. This morning, as we partake of the Lord's Supper, it's an appropriate thought to consider Christ on the cross, to meditate on the power of an indestructible life. I'd like to ask Ariel and Tim Freitag if you would help with the elements this morning.